Welcome to episode number three of the Talent Intelligence Podcast. I'm excited today to be joined by Shirley Harrison from the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre at Sheffield University. How are you, Shirley? I'm okay, thank you. How are you, Rob? Very good, thank you. Thanks for asking. Um, so we have spoken a wee bit before, so I know one you do have a very interesting background. And I, I'm not talking about the main thing we're going to talk about today. Over the last 30 years, you've got a really interesting career, but also as we go into this episode, really keen to talk about what you've been doing over the last kind of few months and a really exciting role, but we'll not we'll not spoil the fun just yet. So it'd be great if you could even just give us a wee bit of background for context, a bit about you, more about your kind of, I suppose, your career, your background, and actually it'd be really helpful, I think, for everybody who's listening or watching what the actual research centre does and who it kind of helps. That'd be really great. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Um uh, yeah, my background is, uh, first of all, I'm a chartered engineer, so I did an engineering degree at Strathclyde, and uh, I joined uh, Unilever when I left university and worked there for, for a number of years, going through the graduate training programme, so went through, had lots of industrial experience, ran factories, basically. Um, did that for a little while in some other companies as well, uh, done some consultancy and, and various other things, and uh, for the last... 12-ish, 13 maybe years that I've worked at the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre in Sheffield. Um, and as you say, the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre is part of the University of Sheffield. Uh, we're sort of, there's a, a number of research centres uh, that work together and we're sort of a faculty within the, within the university. Um, we focus on uh, what academics call translational research. So it's not brand new ideas that no one's ever thought of. It's taking uh, ideas that have already been kind of developed to some level and using them to, um, developing them enough so that industry can actually use those in a practical way. So we uh, work with some very large companies like Boeing and Airbus and Rolls-Royce, um, a lot of aerospace companies, also people like McLaren, uh, supercars mm -hmm. and stuff like that to help those businesses um, adapt and adopt tech, new technologies or optimise processes or, or things like that. All of our work is around manufacturing um, and we work in technologies like machining, composite materials, additive manufacturing, digital automation um, and, that, and that sort of thing. So we, do, we have a, a, wide, a wide range of things that we do and we also work in my main job actually is that I uh, help smaller businesses particularly access what we do because obviously mm. all the companies that I mentioned earlier yeah. are very very large but actually the the sort of technologies that we work on are just as applicable to many smaller businesses and it is about helping those businesses access that in a in a, a way that they can afford so how do you support the smaller businesses? Just I mean, I'm not with some of the manufacturing background, I suppose, so or an engineering background. So how how do you typically help them? Well, a lot of the all of our projects are uh, sort of custom fit. So there's no sort of you have to do a six month project with us or you have to mm. pay a huge amount of money up front. It is all about what suits that particular business. Uh, we have some specific programs that are designed uh, specifically for small businesses. Uh, so, you know, they are, there are uh, limited, you know, small projects that can be done. Sometimes we can fund those because we are one of the catapult centres. So we use some of that money to fund our part fund projects with people. Um, and a lot of our work is about um, 
sharing knowledge. So if, for example, if some, if a small business wants to understand whether or not they should automate a process, because of our wide knowledge of automation, we can easily help them understand that and the pros and cons and what robots might fit what they want to do or whether or not there are better other alternative solutions. Whereas if you were to go to industry, it's quite hard to find someone to mm. talk to you about those things who's not trying to sell you something. So it's it's quite so we we give a lot of independent advice is is something that we do a lot of with uh, businesses that are thinking about technology. So we mm. we help businesses to sort of de-risk some of those some of those decisions that they might want to make. So yeah. a, a wide range of things. And is that a big is that a big team? Is what's the kind of size of that team? Uh, yeah, the uh, the advanced manufacturing research centre where I specifically work is about 540 people. Oh, very big. Um, and there are another two centres that I my EDI role covers, which takes the total up to pushing 700. Very big. So you've obviously explained a wee bit about your background. So obviously I know, and I'm keen for, for you to share this with everyone else, that your role has changed. Yeah, chain stroke. You've had an addition to it. I don't know yeah, what you want yeah. to what you, what you you want to look at it. Um, now I'll just give you the high level. I know that roughly maybe four days a week you do your main job, shall we say? Um, but one day a week now you are working, and as I said, in that kind of diversity, equity, inclusion type role. So, how? I suppose there's a, a number of ways I could go here, but in terms of how did that role even come about? Why? Why on earth are you doing that role? I suppose it's almost <laughs> it's almost. Yeah, how did all of a sudden you're doing five days a week doing your normal job? Now you're one day a week on the D and I role. But actually, why did that role even come up? And I suppose why you? Yeah, why? Okay. Did, thank you, Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> so um, within the university, within the you know we're faculty within the uh, within the institution. Um, there, there is already quite a lot of um, equality, diversity, and inclusion activity happening, and there are clearly full time people working on that within. Uh, the HR function, as one would expect. But the way that the university has organised uh, some of that activity is that most faculties, if not all faculties, also have their own ED&I director. Um, and our faculty was didn't have one, you know, mm. because there is always this question of are we actually a separate faculty or not? So anyway, we didn't have anybody doing that. We had had previously a little bit of activity on it, but nothing really kind of... Um, permanent shall we say yeah so um so the the way that it's set up within the other faculty is that everybody is a, a normal member of the faculty and they work sort of part-time on ed and i and i guess that the idea of that is to embed it better into the normal work rather than it just being seen as something that hr does so you know i guess that's the thinking behind it mm. so um it was decided then that uh, the group that I'm part of, which is the Advanced Manufacturing Group, was going to um, was going to have that. And, you know, they were looking for certain levels of people and they wanted somebody who already worked here to do this kind of one day a week. And because of my background, because I'm an engineer, a chartered engineer, and I have been throughout my whole career, I've been a minority woman since I was 17, when I was in sixth form at school and had to go to another school because... Not only was I the only girl in my school that wanted to do physics at that level, I was the only person. So I had to go to another school to do it, which was great fun. In my little different uniform at 17. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I, 
I, I have always had an interest in that kind of thing, but I've never actually worked in that area, but I've always had an interest in it. And, and obviously, uh, you know, over the decades that I've been part of that, I've seen that there's lots of initiatives, but maybe, uh, you know, sporadic improvement, let's say. Uh, so that was why I was particularly interested in it. And what's also interesting is, I guess, um, you know, typically job adverts would say, oh, you must have two years experience of being an ED&I director in a similar, you know, in a similar sort of role. But actually, and, and we'll come on to this, but, but actually, I think this is, a, this is a job that is about managing change. And I've done lots of that throughout my career. So you know, I applied for it and I got it. I, I don't know how many other people applied for it. <laughs> and how are you balancing out, I suppose, the two roles then at the moment? How, I mean, like, as I said earlier on, I suppose it's been up and running for a few months now, but how are you, how are you balancing it or how are you finding it? Um, I'm finding it okay at the moment. I mean, what is quite interesting, I think, is that um, my normal work, is perhaps because of the pandemic and, you know, us working in a lot of aerospace and us not being able to do any real kind of face-to-face -face work. You know, we can do things if they're absolutely urgent, but in terms of the kind of stuff I would often do with businesses, which is um, helping them access our stuff face-to-face -face and bringing them in and introducing them to people and maybe giving them a technology discovery day or, you know, attending events and networking and all that. Obviously all that's off. So, mm. Although I've got still a lot of work to do, it's perhaps, it, you know, I can do it at home. And I've been at home, I think I'm on week 57 working from home. <laughs> so it's fine at the moment, balancing the two things. What will be really interesting is when it, when everything gets back up and running, you know, post 21st mm. of June, hopefully, um, that we that I can then see how, how that actually starts working. So I guess maybe at the end of this year, that will, that will kind of be the acid test. But then hopefully some of the actions that I'm doing will be kind of up and running and it will be, because obviously any new role that you take on is very intensive at the beginning. Mm. You've got to learn a lot of stuff about it. You've got to make new connections. You've got to work out what you're going to do. Um, and so I always find any new substantial activities that you're going to do are always like quite manic at the beginning. And then, you know, once you sort of set up some processes, they become a bit, a bit less demanding. No, so I know in this purpose of this episode, we want to talk more about this one day a week role. And, and there's numerous ways, I think, before we come on, I said there was a couple of ways we could have gone with this, but I'm keen to, suppose, I suppose, maybe dive in right in the middle, maybe, I suppose, in terms of there's the gender pay gap section I'm quite keen to talk about first. Cause, yeah. And I know the role has only been up and run for a few months, and I know how things you need to settle in and find processes about. A very high level. What what have you discovered, or what do you think you've learned, even just in the space of a few months um, in the work that you've been doing? Yep. Okay. So I think I think there are a few things that are worth kind of noting about um, what I'm doing and what my approach is. Um, and I guess yep. that perhaps because I'm not an HR professional, I might look at things a little bit differently. And I guess maybe that is the benefit of having the the arrangement that we have, which is that you have a person who's a normal member of staff, but interested in it, working on this stuff, embedded alongside the actual mm. HR, ED and I professionals. So um, my sort of um, fundamental belief in this is that, and, and I sort of alluded to it earlier, 
I've I've been doing I've I've been in this business for decades and I've not seen very much lasting change. And I firmly believe that these issues, issues around equality, diversity, inclusion are systemic issues. And therefore, they need systemic change to solve them. It is not then, I don't think, about you know, changing necessarily what people do by training them to do different things or mm. making them feel guilty because they're part of the majority or you know, those kind of things. Now, those, particular, those type of things might have a place as one of the levers that you might pull, but I am very, very much about looking at processes and making the, designing the processes to be inclusive. That's very much my, uh, my fundamental kind of approach. Um, so the, and the second part of that then is that I believe that needs to be driven by data. So what data can you get and what can you look at and what does that tell you? Mm. And, and how do you use that data to drive actions and actually communications? Now, I recognize very much that I am an engineer and I work with engineers so everyone who I'm presenting data to, you know, when I go and present data to the senior leadership team, um, I'm presenting to engineers. I don't think there's anybody who's not, uh, not an engineer that I'm talking to. Mm. That is just like, we work in manufacturing. Everybody who works with us is an engineer. Um, and, and what I've discovered is that even things that are obvious, so... It is obvious, for example, that there are not that many women in my workplace. Mm -hmm. And it is also obvious that many of the women that you do meet are in fairly low grade jobs. You know, the university has a grading system um, and you will see that the women that you do see are in, you know, admin jobs or um, lower level kind of work. Okay. So you know that because you work in the workplace and you see it. Nice. And it's not a surprise to then analyze the data and discover that that is the case and, you know, put it on a chart. However, what I discovered, and this did slightly surprise me, is that by putting that on a chart and presenting it to people and having a direct comparison of how many women are there, what grades are the women on versus what grades are the men on, and actually doing those comparisons, that is extraordinarily powerful. Mm, Even though... When I was putting the data together, I'm kind of like, yeah, I know this. It was like, this is incredibly powerful. Um, and also having that kind of coherent narrative um, and working out a story and, and, and having, I think the one other thing I would say is having like really simple charts. Anybody can understand the sort of charts that I put together. Uh, you know, my favorite chart of all is a two, a two set of data pie chart you know there are two things on the pie chart and they tell you something that's my favorite type of data simple, I, nice and simple yeah. but i i really i really like data that you don't look at it and go what is this trying to tell me i like data where it's obvious what it's telling you i, I really like data presented in that way um, and that anybody in the organization can understand so who so i suppose there's a few things in there in terms of the data side of things in terms of what, who you present, because I know you mentioned it's mostly engineers, but who are you presenting the data to? Um, and I suppose you've touched on the narrative and is it, is the narrative pretty much what you were saying in terms of it's almost what you see. It's pretty much, it's, it's obvious or is there, 
more to it than that, I suppose. Um, so the first thing, uh, the, the role that I'm in, the, the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Director reports to the Vice President of Innovation in the university. Okay. Um, and, and he is, in my normal job, he's my boss's boss's boss. You know, he's <laughs> quite a bit higher up. Um, and there is a senior leadership team, which is the heads of the, the chief execs, basically, of the three institution, the three research centres, basically, that make up the, the group that I'm the director for. Okay. So, so it's quite an interesting kind of dynamic there. But what is, um, what's really good is that they are all really supportive of it. And the, the, the vice president of innovation is really supportive of this and has been one of the key people who has said, we need to do this. And he's very accessible to me. You know, I just, if, you, if I contact him and say, can I have a catch up with you, it's fine. Most of what I do is that I would, contact, I would when, I, when I think I have something that I want to tell them or ask them for permission, um, then I would, um, I would go to their regular meeting that they have and I'd just ask for a slot on that agenda. Um, so I'm presenting to those people, but then having got there in the first instance, but then having got there okay, then it is about then accessing the teams, that, the exec teams that are at one level down and then the, the heads of group and then, you know, and ca kind of cascading through, through management stuff, which is quite, it's potentially quite time consuming. Um, and it is really important then in that process to have already had the buy-in and acceptance and backing of the very senior team so that I'm not going and saying, I'm thinking about this, what do you think of it? I'm going and saying the SLT, the senior leadership team have agreed that this is what's going to happen. Um, and that is really, really important in that role. So um, otherwise I would just spend all my time trying to get people to agree to things. <laughs> um, so so that's, that's important, but I have deliberately set up my data so that I could present that to, you know, I could go and present that to any team. I can go and present that to the admin team. I can go and present that to a research team. It's obvious. I've presented it to, in my conversations with central HR people, because I need them to help me with some of the actions I've often said in a in a one-to-one -one situation, shall I just run through this data with you? Um, so that they can see the kind of mm -hmm. stuff that I'm talking about. And that just gives people, it's very helpful to give people context. So this might be a rhetorical question slightly. Um, I've done a couple of podcast episodes with other people on, I suppose, going back to even the time of when Black Lives Matter things that were all starting maybe this time last year and um, there's a lot in the press in terms of and a lot of companies came out i've asked this question a lot but a lot of companies come out and said right we're we're learning or we're educating ourselves we're going to make a change um as, and when i say sort of talk question i mean it's so clearly you're at the stage where you've got a lot of data you're presenting the data people are paying attention to it and they're supporting you do you think you're going to run into roadblocks when you actually come down to the executing stages and as I, said, I know it's a rhetorical question because i can't imagine you're gonna say no no that boss guy's not going to let me do it but i suppose <laughs> it's almost how do you think that's going to pan out or i suppose how do you hope it's going to pan out when you actually come to because i know we're going to talk about process in a minute but in terms of making those changes you feel like you've got the support etc behind you yeah so the way the way that i actually went about this from the off was not just to analyze data and kind of see what people think of it what I actually did was I gathered together a lot of data, had a look at it, 
and then said, okay, as I now start to analyze this, and we can talk about that in a minute, about mm. what, what that actually was, but then to actually translate that into actions. Um, so um, it was, it's not just a case of saying, here's some data that reflects what our group looks like. It's actually a question of saying, here's, a, here's some data that reflects what our group looks like, and here are the actions that I propose we take. Mm. Um, and I did that right from the off. And okay. so what okay. I've been doing subsequently is that then when the senior leadership team agreed that, then basically I said, right, I plan to look at these three areas. They go, yeah, great. I've gone off and then built that up. And so now I'm at the point of, you know, we're about to start running a pilot on new recruitment processes, for example. And I've got that agreed um, that even at a local level that we're going to do that. And I've identified some hiring managers who are going to be the pilot um, you know, we're going to pilot with their roles and stuff like that. So I, I can talk about that in a minute. But yeah. but I I went from the off saying, here are some actions that I think we should be taking. And, and to be honest, that's what the senior leadership team wanted. In appointing somebody to this role, um, they want me to just get on with it. They don't have like a strong opinion themselves about what the right answer is. They mm -hmm. just want somebody to deal with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's fine by me and uh, we've mentioned gender pay gap a couple of times I mean I think it's worth saying in in starting to look at this data very quickly I mean one of the first things that happened to me as I was in this role was that someone contacted me who I'd never met before from another part of the university and said you need to set a target for closing the gender pay gap <laughs> and, uh, and I was like okay uh, I don't have any data on that I don't I don't actually have any data on that so sent me a load of data and I was going is there a is there a way that we can sort of do some analysis of this and and so basically I had to immediately make recommendations about what what sort of things we should be doing to close the gender pay gap and what I well what our target should be to 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 reduce the gender pay gap for 20 by 2025 where where should we be in 2025 and, and I wasn't prepared to do that unless there were actions behind it. I'm not too prepared just to come up with a number. Mm. And it had to be backed by actions. Um, and so that, that was something that we, I had to do immediately. And because ED&I is such a huge area, um, I decided that, you know, I, I'd, I've got one day a week to work on this. I can't, I can't do everything. I decided that as this is the only area where there is actually an external target, you know, there is an institution level target mm. and we feed into it, that that would be an area where I would initially focus some um, action plan uh, analysis and, and action plans. But in doing so, by developing inclusive processes, just to go back to what I said at the beginning, yeah. I think it's about processes, then it should be the case, hopefully, that a lot of the actions that we will take will actually attract generally a more diverse mm. um, group of people or support a more diverse group of people if we're talking about existing staff than, uh, and it not just be about gender. Um, but we've, we've got the data now, we can keep an eye on that kind of thing. And so I know we're going to jump into actions and the process changes, but you, you mentioned a minute ago there, are you able to share any of the data without giving away anything specific? <laughs> um, I haven't. Well, I haven't got any graphs or anything to, to share with you. No pie charts um, today. Oh. No, I mean, you know, they're 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 sitting on my computer quietly. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I could talk. I could talk at high level about some of the things. So, for example, uh, we we work in uh, manufacturing, 
and engineering, as, as I already alluded. Um, and in the particular area that I work in, about 25% of the staff are women. And if you, if you look at that across a, a number of different organisations, you know, a lot of people say about 25% is what they've got. Okay. It seems to be a fairly common number. And if you dig into it, but the interesting thing is when you then start digging into that a bit more about actually what are those people doing and what kind of roles have they got and how much are they paid and, uh, you know, and it's not about people doing the same job being paid differently. It is about the, the type of role that they're in right. and what money that attracts. Um, and it's just interesting to then start to, to get into digging into that kind of detail. So in terms of um, thinking about that kind of stuff, um, it, you know, we have a gender pay gap. More of our, of those women who are employed, more of them are on lower grade kind of admin, cleaning, hospitality type of roles. And more of the men are in higher level research type roles. Mm. And there are um, women, there are some women who are in higher level roles. I mean, I'm one of them, but there aren't lots. And when you look at the exec team, that's almost across, the, you know, all of the kind of people, the level above me and the level above them, if you look at that across the whole, the whole piece that we're looking at, which is quite a lot, you know, maybe about 20 or so people, there's probably two women in that group. So, right, okay. you know, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a, quite a small percentage and the high, so the higher up you get, the, few, the fewer women there are. Um, and it's just a, it's just a quite an interesting thing to start looking at. And then if you look at the type of roles that we have, we have sort of, and this was one thing that was quite surprising to me because I've just not thought about it that much. We have roles that are research, actually carrying out research, which is a, a great, a good amount of what we do. And then we also have what we call professional services roles, which is, you know, supporting research. Okay. And I'm in a professional services role. You know, I don't actually do research myself. Um, and equally, you know, cleaners and admin staff are professional services as well. Okay. Um, and there is a quite a big difference then in the amount of women in each of those. So um, more than 30%, about 37%, almost 40% of the, of the professional services staff are women. Right, okay. But a much smaller percentage of the research staff are women, like a less than 10%. And so that then gives you a, an opportunity to say, in terms of, you know, I was saying about action planning. So immediately I go, okay, well, research will start at a higher level. You know, research will start at kind of mid-grade on, the, on the, the band of grades, upper level, upper to mid. So one of the ways we could easily start to impact the gender pay gap is by employing more female researchers. Mm -hmm. that's a really easy thing to do um you know theoretically anyway it's, it's a really easy thing to do but it's a it's an obvious action but if i hadn't analyzed the data by saying what's the percentage splits across these different types of roles it's not about the location that those women work in or whatever it's about the type of role then i wouldn't have have thought of that i wouldn't have and and nobody had ever mentioned it to me before i mean they may have known it but nobody had ever mentioned that before so so that's an example of by doing that just kind of real simple data analysis and go oh that's interesting 
hardly any of the researchers are actually women. And then when you think about it, you go, oh, yeah, actually, I, I did know that. I just hadn't really mm. thought about it. And so that then leads us to the first of my, I've got kind of three big actions that I'm doing at the moment, three project areas, programs, whatever, is about how do we recruit more female researchers? How do we attract? And, and, and the measure of that is it's about getting them to apply. So the, the measure of success will be how many women typically apply for our research roles now, how many women apply for our research roles afterwards. Mm. Clearly, this is about positive action. It's not about positive discrimination. You know, we are very much legal here. Um, so, uh, but, it's, it, but it's about how do we get women to apply? And there are plenty of people who say to me, and we do have the data on this, um, most uh, research roles, no women apply, or maybe one or two apply. And, you know, you might get a lot of candidates applying. So it's, um, it's interesting to see that. So that's my, my kind of first big area. Um, when you then look at the, the professional services things, particularly, because that's where most of the women work, Mm -hmm. then you can see that there's quite a big disparity in the, the grades between the men and women, as, as okay. I was already alluding to. So one of the things then becomes, okay, we already have actually quite a lot of women. You know, there's about 600, more than 600 of us and 25% are women. So there's kind of 150-ish mm -hmm. plus women. Well, what are we doing to develop and retain and promote those women? So my second area of work is about looking at existing staff and how do you, how do you develop and, and retain and promote those, those women? So we, have, we haven't got into that. Uh, we, you know, that's something that's like recruitment pilot is number one. Then the next thing we're going to start looking at this. So um, thinking about things like mentoring or net, you know, internal networking and on women understanding really explicitly how promotions processes work mm. and you know things like that mm -hmm. um so that's that's the other area and then the final area is a, a supporting program which is about light which goes across all of it or supports all of the actions which is about uh, training for all line managers about not just dd and i about everything to do with being a manager because like many organizations, you know, you promote people, you don't necessarily, to be a manager, you don't necessarily train them to be a manager. Mm -hmm. So um, there's no point in recruiting a more diverse workforce if you don't have the management skills to support them and that when they get into the business, that's not an experience. So the whole piece about line management and, and how to go about that and building the thing is, a, is another part of the, the process. Now, clearly none of the three things I've discussed there are overnight solutions. No, either. I was going to say not in one day a week, no. <laughs> these, are these are programs of work. But also it's important to note, you know, it's not my job to actually deliver any of this. I'm the director. It's my job to decide that's what we're going to do, get people to agree to it, mm. and then get the actions actually started. So so with the recruitment, we're, we're starting a pilot on that and we're going to run it to, for the rest of 2021 um, at least. So at least another nine months, maybe, um, maybe right up for another, maybe for 12 months. Um, and the, the, what we will be doing there is we will be trialing a lot of different processes, but we will trial them just on specific roles that we're recruiting. So I've, I've sort of gone back to some hiring managers who I know are going to hire roles this year right. and said to them, will you be part of this pilot for 
a few of your roles, not for everything, but for a few of them. Because I want to be able to do some comparisons. I want to be able to say, you know, here is a, I don't know, a cybersecurity specialist role. Um, the last time we recruited this role, we had uh, no women apply or one woman apply. And now we've had this many women apply. And then we can actually start to collect some data and, and see how that's see how that's going and if it's actually working. Um, so yeah, that's that's the kind of way that we're doing it. And so I've got lots and lots of people whose job is recruitment working on that. I was going to say. So I know I know you you were saying about the pilot then for the rest of this year. And so in terms of so I'm just writing down here clearly it's in terms of targets or things you're going to be measuring in terms of number of applications by gender so on and so forth are you able to share some of the ideas or tactics mm -hmm. that you plan to use i suppose as part of those pilots and tests and what things you're going to kind of be working on just to see yeah what, what works what doesn't work and so on and so yeah, forth It'd be great, great to share that you kids yeah absolutely sure thing so um specifically some of the things we're, we're going to do the first one is um, the way that we write job descriptions um, okay. is, is one of the areas that we're looking at. So uh, the way that we would typically write job descriptions, and it's, you know, it's quite prescriptive, it's kind of laid down by the university. And so one of the things that I've been doing a lot is sort of saying, here is something we'd like to change a bit. Is this still acceptable? Can we change the process if it isn't? As it turns out, it's fine. But it is about rather than saying... Um, you must have two years experience in a role similar to this and you must have that degree and you must have done this and you must know how to use that software or whatever the kind of typical input focused quite technical things that we would tend to write in a in a job description is to actually try to change that and talk about the outcomes that the job is going to achieve um, and Lots of, uh, you know, I've read lots of things. I've come across lots of things that say that that is a way that you can attract a more diverse pool. And, and I'm sure I'm, I'm sure you and the, the, the people watching this are very aware that, you know, because it, it gets trotted out all the time. Women only apply for things if they, if they feel they meet all the criteria. Mm -hmm. Men are much less, more likely to apply if they only meet some of the criteria. So by talking about the output, then you, you kind of change that. You know, so we were talking about the, my EDI role. If the EDI uh, description had been, you must have already worked in this area, well, I wouldn't have applied for it. Mm. Um, as it turns out, what the role needs is data analysis, strategy planning, change planning, and a lot of communication. It's not anything to do really with actually... Have, you know, I've gone away and I've got the technic some technical knowledge. I'm not going to say I'm an expert, but I've gone away and done lots of courses and talked to lots of people. And, you know, I've learned about a lot of EDI things in terms of that technical knowledge. See, before you even go on, I was going to, I'm just as a devil's advocate question in terms of when you're saying, and I agree with you in terms of outcome based versus I've got two years experience in this, for example. Again, I'm not having a manufacturing engineering background, but are these things still, I suppose, I'm just, the devil's advocate would be, we do not need these skills, though, as part of the, again, maybe because it's a technical type role. Um, I think to myself in marketing, for example, people don't have marketing degrees, but they've went away and they've ran their own business or done their own thing and they've actually got, they've almost self-taught themselves. It's almost 
I always have this picture in manufacturing or engineering. They've got to be like a, a maths whiz or something like that. Or, and it's So it's almost when you say outcome-based, I totally get it. It's almost like what happens to the two years experience? Does it just get bumped down a little bit or is it just, it's we need it, but it's just part of the bigger package? Well, I think there are I think there are a few things to to think about there. I mean, yeah, obviously it's unlikely that somebody who's who's got say a marketing background is going to end up being a cybersecurity specialist. I mean, um, it's not it's not going that far. But then if the outcome is that you've got to research cybersecurity solutions and uh, be able to analyze data and present that back to present possible solutions back to clients then that is um, yeah. that is a tech that requires a, an amount of technical knowledge, but it doesn't mean that you have to have necessarily already worked in that area. It's yeah. it's just putting a, a different emphasis on the things, and it's also about uh, you know one of the biggest things that we need in our in our business and anybody in research needs actually is the ability to learn new things. That is yeah. actually the single probably biggest skill that we need and that's not actually I don't think anything that I've ever read in any of our job descriptions what we need is we need people who are flexible and able to take on new stuff and we need that across every role actually I mean you know we were just talking about my role I've taken on this new thing and I've just gone away and found out about it and I'm not saying that I would compete with the HR professional EDI people I'm not suggesting that for a minute but I perfectly capable of doing what needs to be done in my bit of the business mm-hmm. with their support. Um, and so, you know, if you know how to do certain software, well, one thing I can tell you for sure is that in two years, there'll be a different type of software that you have to know. <laughs> and the same with, because we are working on emerging technologies, I mean, that is absolutely true with us. So it is about just changing the focus mm-hmm. of, of what these descriptions say. And, and as I say, it's not that it's wildly different, it, it, but it's just shifting that emphasis. And it is also about putting a bit more uh, care and thought into it. Now, one of the things that I'm very, very keen on is that we actually move towards having a much more standardized recruitment process so that really for all of our roles, and many of our roles are similar, you know, there's a lot of kind of project engineer, project manager, program manager type roles senior project engineer, you know, there's a lot of roles that are quite similar, that we have sort of 80% standard processes, you know, for this type of role, for a a grade six project engineer, the the job description is kind of 80% standard. You can Mm. put your own things on it, but it's 80% standard. Um, And I'm very keen on that. And what that gives you then the opportunity is to then have much more standard job uh, adverts, so that you're you're talking about things in a much more standard way and also then much more standard selection methods so if we need people who are adaptable and can learn new things how do we test that if we if we okay everybody needs that how how do we actually test that and there could be a couple of ways maybe one is some things you ask them in an interview maybe one is i don't know maybe you do a psychometric test test that maybe you give them an exercise to do depending on the role and so for your recruitment your particular recruitment you could choose you know one or more of those ways of doing that but they're already standard they're already Mm. defined they're already set up so as a hiring manager everything becomes a good deal more simple Mm. and less time consuming but from our point of view um, as in a, a group of people who want a more diverse workforce much um 
more objective um, and much more hopefully inclusive. So, so that's this sort of approach. So thinking about job descriptions, thinking about then the words that you use in your advert, mm. thinking about where we advertise, that's a big thing for particularly women. I'm very keen on uh, looking at women returners. You know, so women who've had a career break for, I don't know, it could be anything from, it could be up to, I guess, 10 years. I mean, 10 years wouldn't even be a cutoff, but there are plenty, I know, mm -hmm. I know women, great, smart, technical women with technical backgrounds who've had a career break, a lengthy career break. Well, I'm pretty sure they can come and learn some of the stuff that we need them to do. And, and could be a great asset. And uh, they're unlikely to leave because they're anchored locally. You know, they've mm -hmm. got kids they've, at school. They've, they're not going to just go off and um, get another job that pays twice as much. Uh, so thinking about where we advertise. And then, as I say, thinking about selection methods, uh, being having that much more robust. Thinking about if you're asking questions, for example, in an interview, much more standardised questions. And also, crucially, I feel, what is a good answer to that question? And what is a medium answer to that question? And what is not a great answer to that question? And so that we have much more standard consistency mm -hmm. um, to those kind of things as well. Um, and then finally, the other part of it is kind of thinking about induction and, yep. and just thinking about how do we improve that. And what about the, because I think we, we spoke before in terms of, the language in the job ads it was a great i think you gave me a, re a really good example which I, which seems so obvious but i hadn't even thought about it with and i'm just using an example of you were trying to encourage more female applications for example the around almost starting it with or in the headline i don't know where it would be but but it's obviously clearly saying this could be part-time flexible or full-time working for yeah. example i mean i think that was yourself who gave me that example i mean is that the kind of things that I, i'm assuming yeah yeah absolutely great yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in our current uh, job descriptions, you know, it does say, but it's kind of on page four at the bottom mm. in the small print. It says, this post has been identified, something like, this post has been identified as full-time. However, we are open to uh, part-time and flexible work, committed to part-time and flexible working. And it's kind of, please call to discuss, you know, a type of thing. Now, okay, but I don't think that goes nearly far enough. And you, I, said earlier on, you said earlier on that females, for example, would be looking to try and tick every box. And by the time they've got halfway yeah. through in the ad, they wouldn't even get to the no, page four anyway. Yeah. And also, uh, when you, if you search on our current platforms, if you search for our jobs, and you, because I tried it myself, and you click part time, that you only want a part time role, you know, you filter, none of our jobs come up. And yet, all of our jobs could be part time. All of our jobs could right, be part time. Okay. Uh, there is no reason, you know, most of our jobs are project focused. You just take on fewer projects if you work part time. It's not a thing that we have. We have some part time people, but we don't have a huge number. But there is no reason why our job, any of our jobs couldn't be part time. Uh, there are very few that would even have to be a job share. You know, there are a few, but not mm -hmm. many. I mean, most of our stuff is about projects. So you would just take on fewer, fewer projects. Um, so yeah, having that front and centre and actually the opening line, part-time, flexible or full-time working. This post is suitable for part-time, flexible mm, or full-time working. And of course, like any organisation, you know, there will be a handful of jobs that are not suitable for flexible working. You know, I don't know if you're a receptionist 
you're running manning reception running reception you have to be there at certain times when reception is open you can't say well i'm not going to come in till 10 today but you can be a part-time receptionist Mm -hmm. you know you could you could absolutely do that so it is just all about every role can have one of those things definitely um and that's one of the things i've sort of challenged quite a few of my colleagues to say well I don't believe there are any roles that don't fit this. Please tell me if you think there is one. <laughs> and nobody has told me one. I don't know whether they think I'm serious about that or not. We'll see as, as time goes on. But yeah, that kind of thing. And also the language around, you know, the, you know, there are software that you can run your your adverts and descriptions through to make sure that the that the language isn't gendered, you know, and there are certain words that, that cue women more than men, you know, like collaboration is a, a good feminine word. Mm. Example. What did that? What did I ask you about? What about um, blind selection processes? Yeah, so that is a thing that we do absolutely want to do. Oh, do um, our so, but but we haven't uh, we haven't got the capability to do that yet. Right. The technical capability um, within the university, there is a piece of software uh, that they've identified that they really want to do. Uh, they've all been telling me about it, uh, but. I don't know if there's some issues with IT or whatever. Mm. Anyway, I've said to them, <laughs> as soon as you have those issues sorted out, we will we will pilot that. Okay. Uh, we will be the first people to pilot that. Um, and, you know, it will fit in with this and it will be kind of part two of the, of the recruitment pilot stuff. So I expect that will probably take more months than we expect. So, you know, realistically, maybe before the end of 2021, we might have that. But yeah, that there's there's a, a great um, totally blind software thing that we've identified that I'm really, really keen to do. And I've and I've spoken to, you know, the, the, the seniors that I need to speak to about that and said, I've told them we will pilot this. And they went, yeah, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> so um, again, it's just part of that. The, 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 me- the message I've had very clearly is we want you to just kind of get on with this. We're not, we're not, we don't want to be putting barriers in the way. Um, just on that, actually, there are some quite interesting things that people have said to me, you know, like, so the, some very senior people have said to me, we tend to, in our workplace, wear workwear, you know, so you're like corporate polo shirt type thing. Mm-hmm. Now they're not mandatory. They're not actually mandatory. However, it is culturally, you know, most people do tend to wear them not everyone but most people do tend to and one of my very very senior colleagues was saying yeah I think that's a barrier to women he said and he's a man he said I think that's a barrier to women Uh, I think that you know they are hideously unflattering true (laughs) and I think that we have enough problems recruiting women I don't think we should be putting any other barriers in and I think we should really seriously look at Mm -hmm at what what that situation is now i was pleasantly surprised that he was he was saying that because that is the kind of thing that um people don't often think about and they would say well that's gender neutral but it, it isn't gender neutral just like you know public transport isn't gender neutral because buses don't arrive at the time that you need to go and drop off and pick up your kids because you know, by the time you've dropped your kids off at school, if you need to get the bus, you've missed the peak bus mm-hmm. and you're going in on the next bus and they've probably reduced the service by that time or, you know, whatever. No, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of that kind of stuff that, that kind of happens. And and particularly where, where we work, 
um, that there is a bus, but we are kind of out of town uh, on, a, on a regenerated park. Um, actually, we're where the Battle of Orgreave was during the minor strike. That's exactly where we are. Oh, okay. um, and so there isn't really, you know, there's, a, there's one or two buses. It, it's not an amazing service. It kind of runs at certain times, you know. Um, we're a bit short of car parking. There isn't any childcare close by. There's a cafe, but there isn't, you know, we don't have any in-house catering. You know, there's a load of things that, mm. that when you start to think about that, you kind of go, yeah, actually, there are perhaps other things facilities-wise that might that might make things um, more attractive. That's interesting that someone, I suppose it shows as well that they are thinking about it as well, maybe even from the conversations you've been having with them that, it's on their mind and they're thinking about it, which is, which is, I suppose, is a, a very much a positive. What about, um, I had one question I was going to ask you, in terms of the interview panels, then does that make, does that change, is that changing your scope of work? Um, I don't know if there's a, what I mean is, I don't even know if there's a problem with with it just now, but is that no, no, there part is. of the scope? Yeah, well, there is. Uh, yeah, is that part of the scope? Yeah, and I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole, the whole recruitment process is in scope. The entire recruitment process is in scope. So, um, yeah, interview panels, uh, the training that those people have had, mm. the makeup of those people, the questions that they ask, what they know in advance, how well prepared they are, how they score answers, whether we do interviews or and or other things so things like um do we just do an interview and do we just do it by the hiring manager who goes oh god i've got some interviews this afternoon i can't remember what i was going to ask them and can you come and help me because you're walking past now i'm not saying that that is actually what happens but you know there is that kind of um last minute kind of lack of preparedness that often happens to people in the workplace and this is another driver towards having a much more standardized process so, you know, you've, you've got a pack of stuff that you pick up and that's how you do an interview. The, the answer is not to make, try and make managers spend a long time preparing for interviews because that is not going to happen. No. The answer is to make it that the standard process is there and you pick it up and you use it. Mm-hmm. That, that, for me, and that kind of exemplifies my approach, the answer is to make the processes change the behaviours and change what's asked. So, you know, you've got... Um, you know, there are other things that you're looking at other than just an interview. So, you know, if the job is about analysing data and then presenting that to a variety of audiences, instead of asking questions about that, let's give them that as an exercise to do. Um, but if doing presentations isn't relevant to that role, then let's let's not do that. And and another area, you know, is things like it is absolutely true, and I'm sure I'm sure this is something that happens with you guys all the time, uh, Rob. I'm sure you're very aware of it. The confident people are the people who get the job from an interview process. The competent person may or may not be also the person who's most confident, but mm-hmm. it is the conf- confidence that gets you through an interview. Um, and so in my line of work, we may well be recruiting people who are, you know, you were talking about, you have to be good at maths. People who are really good at maths are not always the best people at talking. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you want to start thinking about recruiting a more neurodiverse uh, group of people, for example, 
interviews is not really the best way to select those people. You know, there are other ways that you could select those people. So it is really about starting to think about all of those kind of things and the makeup of the panel, as you say, but also thinking about other selection methods um, and thinking about what's most appropriate for those, for those things and not just relying on, on that. Um, we're looking at things like, um, are there certain people who are like really good at interviewing so that we know that when you are going to recruit a role, there's a list of people and you can contact one of them or two of them and see who's available and get them to join you on your panel so that we make sure we've got a more diverse mm. panel and stuff like that. So, no, yeah. it's, a great point about, it's a great point about the interviews because I know, I mean, I, over the last year, I suppose, with um, everything's been happening, not been interviewing that much, but over the years, probably you interview, I don't know, 30 or 40 people a year and it's funny when you get people who's maybe on interview one, a tip, well, a marketing typical interview one's more of just a one-to-one chat, just a bit about their background and their skills. And as you said, some people maybe come across a bit nervy, but you can tell if you answer the right questions and make them feel a bit comfortable, there's enough there. And then if second interview might be a presentation, all of a sudden they just, they're just rocket. They're just amazing because they've just went up and they're just it's a different style they just know their stuff and they just present mm. it and they show you we'll do this that and we'll measure it this way and it, so it's, it's perfectly it's a great point in terms of styles or interview styles and who's doing the interview i couldn't agree more so you've only been doing this a few months what's the where do you want to be i suppose come the end of this year or next year and i don't want to say the classic one year or three years but <laughs> i suppose where do you want to what would what would look like success i suppose even in a year's time or end of the year what would you want to be so the, uh, for the rest of this year, we've got the pilot of the new recruitment processes happening across a variety of roles in a, in a couple of different locations. Mm. So I would want to be able to actually have some data coming in on that where we can see whether or not those are actually making a difference. And I really do believe that they will, mm. um, but I want to have data to back that up. Um, another thing that I want to do as part of the recruitment, and I think I, I neglected to mention this earlier, but one of the things I really want to do to get more women to apply is to actually engage more with two populations. So I sort of mentioned the women returners. Mm-hmm. I want to actually target that group of women, um, which is quite hard, but I, I want to actually target and engage with that group of women. And also for our entry level positions, I want to really engage with final year students, which mm-hmm. because we're part of the university is theoretically simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want, but I want to actively engage with women in both of those groups and to start running things like uh, women only internships or work experiences. So uh, that's, that's an area that I, I really want to, to do some work on. Obviously, in the current situation where, you know, as I said, I'm on week 57 or 58 working from home. <laughs> it's, it's not possible to really do that at the moment, but I really do want to start doing that because my experience is that when I speak to young women, young women particularly, there are two things. One is about the confidence of, I'm not sure if I can do that. So if we said, uh, come and learn how to program in Unity so that you can do some visual re- uh, virtual reality work with us, I've never done that. I don't know if I can do it. Whereas a lot of guys would go, yeah, I'll do that. Um, but a lot of women would not do that. And so the first thing is, well, come and try it, you can. But the other one is, the, the question I get asked most by young women is, what is it like to work in a male-dominated environment? Now, 
I've only ever worked in a male-dominated environment, so I can't really, I mean, mm. I go, yeah, it's fine. That's not really a good enough answer. No, and the, the thing that will help them is to experience it. And so I am really very much in favour of, and, I, and I'm planning to do some uh, women-only uh, short work experience, and then maybe we'll have some specific uh, longer internships, you know, like year in industry type of stuff that a lot of people do but actually specifically get women into some of those. Um, and the idea being that they will then be have, feel confident about applying for a job mm -hmm. with us. So, so they've, they've worked in the male-dominated environment and found that actually it's fine. And secondly, they, they know that they can program in Unity because they, they did it. So, uh, or whatever the particular technical skill is. But so I'm really, really keen on that. And the same goes for women returners. Perhaps the women returners might have already worked in a male-dominated environment. Maybe they were engineers before they had kids, say. But but now, you know, they might feel that their technical skills aren't up to up to scratch. So there's an opportunity for them to come back and actually um, do a bit of retraining and trialing some some other stuff and finding out where they fit and what today's workplace is like. So I I really want to do some of that um, much earlier stage engagement with people. Mm -hmm so that hopefully they, we, we build those longer-term relationships and they will actually then apply for our roles. And we can actually then contact people and go, we have these jobs coming up. Mm -hmm. Here is the link. You know? So I'm, I'm really, that's, that's an area that I, I'm really excited about doing and I really want to, to, to do that, but it's just difficult at the moment, obviously. No, definitely. They, mean, they both sound like great initiatives. So this is always about it'd be great to connect i suppose it's almost one as well it'd be great to connect again in about a year's time to find yeah, yeah. out find out how it went because as i said it's great doing the part one now we've got the we know what's coming with the pilots because it is, it is interesting all the different things you want to test and again maybe in a marketing person it's all about testing we test things all the time so it's been really interesting to follow up and see and i know you don't want to give it all away but yeah how the how it's how it went um if you're up for that at some point um and talking about connecting i suppose in terms of if people want to keep in touch with you post here because maybe you'll be posting some of your results in social or anonymous results to an extent maybe you'll be sharing some of that but where would they where's the best place for them to connect with you um i'm on linkedin shirley harrison um and it's advanced manufacturing research center sheffield or amrc we're usually known as sheffield so i'm easily findable there and i'm on twitter it's at shirley amrc perfect but look i've got nothing else you've answered that was great you went through as i said evans as i said i really would like to do a follow-up part two though mm, yeah, yeah, to, hear all, to hear, all, hear all the answers um but thank you very much for your time, Shirley. I really appreciate it and I'm sure, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, thank you very much. That's been great. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Take care. Cheers then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.